regulators now have to write down explicitly surgery can't take place in a bathroom you can't ask your patients for nudes for social media are you surprised that that had to be written down if we haven't written it down it's hard for us to enforce because we didn't actually foresee that some people would do the things that we've seen so we've had to go and write down those things that it's not okay for a doctor to pathologize normal human variation and tell people they've got bingo wings and you know need a mummy makeover and those sorts of things like i thought that was obvious This program's content is provided solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as medical, legal or financial advice. Views expressed are opinions only. Our discussions are general and not focused on specific companies or individuals unless explicitly mentioned. We strongly recommend consulting a qualified medical professional before contemplating any major or minor medical procedures. Be advised that some content discussed may be distressing. Discretion is advised. The hosts of this program believe all people should be able to access cosmetic surgery procedures free from judgment. This is Surgery Secrets, Beauty's Dark Side. I'm Madison Johnstone and I'm co-hosting this with Michael Fraser. You can follow along with this podcast on our Instagram and TikTok at operation.redress. Now, you can't really explore the dark side of the cosmetic surgery industry without also looking at who is regulating the industry. The Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, known as ARPRA, regulates various aspects of the cosmetic surgery industry in Australia. Today, we are lucky enough to have Jason McKayser here with us today, who is the head of the recently formed Cosmetic Surgery Enforcement Unit. Welcome. Thanks, Madison. For full disclosure, an entity we're employed by is engaged by ARPRA to provide consulting around social media. To be clear, this is not a public relations push for the regulator. It is intended to be an information session, largely useful for patients who are considering going in and getting cosmetic surgery or for those who might know someone. We would also encourage any practitioners or providers in the cosmetic surgery industry around the world to have a listen. We should make it clear that we've had many tough conversations with various regulators over the years and what we think is in the public interest is often not aligned with what the regulators think, but we find it so much more helpful when the regulator is willing to engage. In the case of APRA, we are happy that you guys have engaged because that makes fighting for change a lot easier. And um, so we wanted to say thank you for that. No, it's a pleasure. Look, I think, um, you know, as you say, we've had a couple of tough conversations and, you know, whilst we might not agree on all of the specific and fine detail, I think we absolutely are on the same side, which is keeping patients safe. Um, You know, the challenge that we have as a regulator often is that we are constrained by the regulations that we have. Um, in the ability of what we can do and you know you have the luxury and it's great to have people who can give us the idealistic what would we do in a perfect world Um, sometimes we need to exercise all of our regulatory powers sometimes we need to seek additional powers um, and sometimes you know we work with the tools that we've got so um, it's okay that we disagree on some of the fine detail but you know like I say and I've said you know multiple times we're clearly on the same side. How did APRA come to regulate the cosmetic surgery industry? I guess that's a it's a big question. So let me start with the basics of you know what does ARPA do? We we regulate health practitioners. 
We don't regulate health services and hospitals and that sort of stuff. So really, um, we do licensing, which we call registration for health practitioners, including doctors. Um, and it's doctors who perform um, cosmetic surgery. So we regulate their license. The way we go about that, um, the first thing that we do and what we do for every doctor is we make sure that they meet the entry level standards. So they've done the appropriate university course, normally in Australia, but sometimes internationally. Um, they need to do continuous professional development. They need to maintain recency of practice and insurance and other things. So there's that threshold that every registered doctor or reg registered medical practitioner, as we call them, in Australia meets those standards. Then there's also some uh, categories of doctors who have specialist registration. So they've done significant additional training that enables them to have specialist registration. So we assess that training, uh, make sure they've done what they need to do, and then they'll appear on our national register and that controls what they're allowed to call themselves as well. And then those uh, different titles, as we call them, they are used by hospitals, used by Medicare, used by Therapeutics Goods uh, Administration, other regulators to see who's allowed to do what. So we don't say doctors can prescribe. The medicines and poisons legislation in each state says only doctors can prescribe and that's medical practitioners who are registered with us. So our role is the registration process. But we also write standards, guidelines, codes of conduct uh, for doctors and all of the other health professions that we regulate. Can you explain to us what kind of doctors can do cosmetic surgery in Australia? Yeah, look, this is a, this is a challenging question because in Australia we have what's called a title protection legislative basis. So that means that we uh, allow people to use certain titles based on having the skills and experience that go with those titles. But what we don't do is regulate what they're allowed to do, which is called scope of practice regulation. Some places do scope of practice registration, but that's not how our scheme was set up. And fundamentally, our scheme is set up that we allow someone to be called a medical practitioner or a doctor, um, and then the code of conduct requires doctors to do appropriate skills, experience and training before they go and perform any sort of procedure. Um, but we leave that in the hands of the practitioners. Can nurses do cosmetic surgery? We don't directly regulate scope of practice for nurses either. Um, but again, the nursing uh, code of conduct has exactly the same provision. So you need to have done appropriate knowledge, skills and experience to do whatever the procedure is that you're doing. And so in nursing, for example, there's a spectrum between enrolled nurse, registered nurse and nurse practitioner with, ex with expanding experience as you move through those levels. Um, so depending on the experience that somebody's got, the training that they've got will determine what they're allowed to do. We've seen issues in the cosmetic surgery industry from both plastic surgeons. So you spoke about specialist specializations, yep. but we've also seen issues as well with the non-specialist surgeons. And I think that was sort of brought to light in those media exposés. We've been calling them documentaries on this podcast that happened in 2021, 2022. Those were largely non-specialist surgeons. Just for background for those listening, does ARPA acknowledge that they dropped the ball when it comes to cosmetic surgery industry regulation? I think the, the whole industry, including regulators, um, had a lot we could do better. Uh, so first up, it's, it was a serious problem. If you've watched the videos and even more so if you've seen the evidence that we've seen, um, you know, there was serious patient harm going on. Um, so you know, clearly room for improvement, which is why um, ARPA and the medical board launched an independent review to make sure that we understood exactly what was going on. And as a part of that, we've established the Cosmetic Surgery Enforcement Unit, uh, released some new registration standards and a whole bunch of other stuff um, that I know you're aware of. Some of the stories that we were hearing about the cosmetic cowboys were truly shocking 
did ARPA really not know about any of that? So, Michael, we received complaints about some of the doctors who were subject to the media coverage, but often the complaints weren't about the types of things that were in the media coverage. We got complaints about some of their advertising, some of the titles that they were using, which at the time were perfectly legal. Um, there's been some subsequent legislative change, which has um, made that not legal anymore. So we also received uh, complaints about aesthetic outcomes, so minor aesthetic outcomes that weren't what the patient was looking for. We hadn't received complaints of the serious behaviour that was exposed in the uh, documentaries um, or that we've subsequently seen from notifications that we've received. So as a complaints-based regulator, we can't act unless people tell us what's going on and they need to tell us enough detail for us to recognise the seriousness of what's going on. Do you think that's sort of changed now, like now that you've seen all these people coming forward, that there's like early stage indicators that would enable you to have a better insight that maybe a string of complaints that didn't seem very detailed about a practitioner might cause you to want to look further into that practitioner? Yeah, so one of the things that the Independent Review did was look at why we weren't able to you know, join the pieces of the puzzle with the information that was in front of us. And certainly uh, you know, one piece was how do we get the public to know that we exist and to report to us? And then the other was when we do get reports, how do we uh, get more information so that we can see when something's serious without overdoing our investigations? We get 10,000 notifications a year. Um, and so with cosmetic surgery notifications, we establish a specific team so that we've got common processes that we use for cosmetic surgery notifications to really explore the patient's journey beyond just what was reported by the patient. So often a patient would report an aesthetic outcome that they weren't happy with, which on its own might not be sufficient for us to take action. But when we talk about their journey, the consent process, the advertising that they saw, the post-operative care, the type of facility that occurred in, all of a sudden we have red, um, you know, red flags and, and alarm bells going off. But we didn't historically ask those questions because it hasn't been the way that we go about our notifications. So it's led to changes that will hopefully be positive in the future. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's led to us taking a, a specific approach for cosmetic surgery and we'll look to, to take a similar approach for other areas. It's also led to us uh, looking more broadly across other regulators. So one of the other recommendations of the review is that obviously ARPA doesn't regulate alone and there's a lot of other people that we can talk to. And whilst we've always had abilities to share information, we've really improved our connectivity with other regulators so that we can join the dots between us. So, you know, if the Victorian Department of Health Licensing has got a concern about a facility and we've got a concern about a practitioner, we wouldn't historically have joined those dots, but now we do. That's really good. And I think the ACCC and the TGA play a role in being involved in that information sharing. I, I don't know how far that's gone, but it would be really good because I think the ACCC was sort of of the view that if APRA were looking at it, then they weren't going to bother. Yeah, look, there's a lot of regulation in Australia that overlaps and um, advertising is a really good one and the three organisations that you just mentioned is a, is a great example. So APRA regulates the advertising of regulated health services, um, which is mostly provided by regulated health practitioners, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, etc. The TGA, the Therapeutics Goods Administration, regulate the advertising of therapeutic goods. So, for example, prescription medication. So if you're talking about... Um, anti-wrinkle injections and you name the products, that's a problem with the TGA, less so with us. And then the ACCC, they regulate advertising more broadly. So where somebody's advertising uh, cosmetic surgery, it's likely that all three regulators are potentially involved and between us we need to figure out who's best placed 
Uh, and it's generally whoever's got the most specific rules for the context. So that means if it's about the practitioner's advertising, it's likely us. If it's about the product, it's likely the TGA. And if it's a broader consumer issue, it's likely the ACCC. Is there trust broken between APRA and the public? Certainly when you look at the media reporting, you know, there were, there's a lot of concerns about you know, why wasn't this picked up earlier. To be honest, rather than um, the trust, I think it's knowledge. I don't think the public even knew we existed. And I think you know, between the stories that have come out in the media and our proactive campaign and other campaigns by state and federal government, we are far better understood but still nowhere near as understood as we'd like to be. So in the last 12 months, we've received 500 calls on the cosmetic surgery hotline. That's an indication that we're getting our story out there about what we do and who should call us. Do they automatically translate into notifications or are they just the first point of contact? It's the first point of contact. So what that leads to is sometimes a patient will ring up the hotline and they'll want to make a report there and then and they'll want to do a discussion with our regulatory facilitators. We've got trained people who understand our notifications process on the other end of the phone and they can take a notification on the spot while they're talking to you. Often what patients want to do is understand the process and how they can do it in their own words and in their own time. So sometimes it'll be a direct, at the end of the phone call, we've got a notification. Sometimes it'll be some information and we might even get a second phone call before they'll go online and write their story in their own words, in their own time. Um, So we get a bit of both. So in the same period, we've had 500 calls and we've had 200 new notifications. With the ARPA register, what always happens is... I think the the first comment from ARPA is to look up the doctor on the register and have a look and see if there's anything that should concern you. We've been quite critical of this because we know that some of the doctors named in the documentaries had perfectly clean records with the ARPA register. It's a good first step because some things do exist uh, on the register, but is there any... um, it doesn't include too much information apart from the qualifications. Is there anything that you're looking to do to expand its ability, include more information, perhaps court data, complaint data, something additional to give the patients more or the public more information? Yeah, it's a good question. It is a challenge for us in terms of you know, how we balance the public information and the privacy of practitioners. So what you can find on the register is largely what you said is you can find that somebody's registered and that's a really important first step, right? Because not everyone who advertises health services is actually a registered practitioner. Um, So that's a a really important first step. You can also find out what type of registration they have. So you have generally registered medical practitioners, so they've done their medical degree and and all the training they need to do to be a doctor. You've got um, specialist general practitioners, so they've trained to be a GP. You've got specialist plastic surgeons, for example. And so if you're going in for a cosmetic surgery operation, uh, you know, you might look at a specialist plastic surgeon, a specialist GP and a generally registered practitioner as offering a different level of training before uh, you go in for your operation. So that information is really important. Then you can see whether they've got any conditions on their registration. So sometimes we need to restrict a practitioner either because as part of the registration process there's um, some minor shortfall that requires, say, supervision or some additional continuous professional development, or we might, because of a notification, require them to have a supervisor or a mentor, those sorts of things. So they'll be reflected on the register. That doesn't mean they're not safe to practice. In fact, if we thought they were not safe to practice, they should be suspended or cancelled. 
So even when they've got conditions on the on the register, we think they're safe to practice as long as they're practicing in accordance with their conditions. The other thing that appears on the register is any publicly releasable information. So if there's been a tribunal or court hearing, and when I say a court hearing, I mean a criminal court from us hearing, not um, civil courts. So if there's been a tribunal or court decision around that practitioner, that'll appear on the register as well. So even after the conditions have been removed, you'll still be able to see the fact of the tribunal hearing. Or if the practitioner has been subject to a formal reprimand, that'll appear on the register for a period of time. With other conditions, so things like advertising restrictions or just any other type of condition, are they always, all of them, available on the register or can a doctor get them removed or scrubbed? So what happens is the default is that restrictions are published on the register while they're active. Uh, And so if somebody has restrictions, say advertising restrictions, which is a good example, while they're subject to those restrictions, it'll appear on the register. When they've done whatever else they need to do, like some education and then written to the board with their understanding of the rules, the board may remove those restrictions and then they disappear from the register. So uh, restrictions are on the register while they are in force. The only exception to that is where for the practitioner's privacy, the board thinks that it's it's, it's unsuitable to publish. And that's often when there's a health restriction. So if you've got a drug impaired practitioner who's subject to urine drug screening, for example, the fact of restrictions is on the register but not the detail of the restrictions because that's an unfair use of or breach of the practitioner's privacy. Is it a problem that a patient might then not have no idea that their doctor had a, at one point had conditions especially if it has to do with the way that the doctor's been practicing so not related to advertising is that putting that patient in harm's way they're not fully informed before going into ha- having cosmetic surgery? Our paramount principle in the national law is protection of the public. So the board will not remove conditions until the board believes that it is safe to do so. So if a practitioner has unrestricted registration, that means that the board is of the view that it's appropriate for them to have unrestricted registration. Similarly, if they've got serious conditions on their registration, as long as they're complying with those conditions, they are safe to practice. So I understand that patients want to understand the regulatory history of their doctors, but at the moment, that's not the case, uh, that it stays on there forever. Because we want people to be able to remediate and then we want them to be able to get back on with their lives. But there is also a project underway at the moment. We've got a, a few different things underway. So we consulted on our data strategy recently and one of the things that we asked in our data strategy was, do people think that there should be more information available on the public register? And so that consultation has closed, but we haven't published our final data strategy. And there was also a uh, professional misconduct blueprint that we recently published and we are looking at particularly for serious professional misconduct and sexual misconduct, whether things need to remain on the register even after the conditions have been removed. That's not yet settled and will likely require a legislative change. Is that around the gender restrictions? Uh, In part gender restrictions, there are other restrictions and, and even suspensions and cancellations. So at the moment, if a practitioner is suspended and returns to practice, Uh, the tribunal decision will appear on the register, but there are other things that won't appear on the register. So there's a question and we don't, you know, we haven't fully answered that question of what else should we continue to publish? Um, The other question that often comes up in that context is, can I see where there's been complaints about my doctor? And as a patient myself, I completely understand that what you really want to know is not are there conditions because most practitioners don't have conditions. What you really want to know is are patients happy? And, you know, one of the potential measures of happiness is have they had a complaint with APRA? But a lot of our complaints, when we look at them 
it doesn't represent professional misconduct or unprofessional conduct, unfortunately, surgery has serious risks associated and things go wrong. And when things go wrong, that doesn't mean that the doctor's necessarily done something wrong or they've met the thresholds for unprofessional conduct. So those appearing on the register when things have gone wrong would actually be um, in some ways uh, a breach of the practitioner's privacy because those complaints weren't found to be uh, sustained. So keeping that information on the register, you know, and also it allows kind of mischievous use of complaints. You know, we see, uh, we don't see a high number, but we definitely see, you know, complaints about competitors. And so what we wouldn't want to do is be able to, you know, complain about a competitor that appears on the national register um, if it's not a, a valid complaint. It does seem like a complex issue. Anecdotally, we've had patients come to us and they were told by APRA after they complained that APRA sort of said to them, well, you were told of the risks and because that risk materialised, you were told about it, so that's not the doctor's fault. And our concern was, well, just because the patient was told about the risks doesn't mean that the doctor was practising in a way that was safe. Do you have any comment on that? Our role is to protect future patients. So where we're a practitioner or a doctor is practising unsafely, we want to protect future patients. But we can't offer refunds, we can't offer revision surgery, we can't offer compensation. And we absolutely recognise that's super frustrating for patients, but it's not our role, unfortunately. So things go wrong sometimes that are nobody's fault. And you know, I can imagine as a patient that's incredibly frustrating. From 2020 onwards, we viewed a significant amount of content online and on social media especially. I think we viewed tens of thousands of images and videos, an alarming amount. And what we were seeing was what really shocked us. And we've said before that we actually were completely outside of this industry. We had no idea whether it was legal or whether it was standard practice. We were seeing live surgeries, very gruesome graphic content, we were seeing highly sexualized images of female patients. We were seeing manipulative language being used like mummy makeover, phrases that were really quite demeaning towards women, sometimes even children. Were you personally shocked at what you saw in the media and now that you've started proactively monitoring this space, have you been personally shocked at what's been out there in advertising cosmetic surgery? I'll come as no surprise that the answer is absolutely yes. Um, yeah, I was shocked by some of the stuff that I saw and frankly when we take some of our papers to the medical board, the board members are equally shocked. Uh, you know, what we expect of our medical practitioners is that they are professionals with the highest ethical standards and if you look at some of the content that you see on social media, even today, although it is significantly better than it was, um, you know, it just doesn't meet that test for what you expect of an ethical professional practitioner. So yes, uh, I think we were all shocked by some of the stuff that we saw. And I think there's also a question that has been levelled to us as how did we not know? And, you know, when you see on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube something that clearly is available to the public, there's an expectation that the regulator must be aware of this. But there's 900,000 registered health practitioners in Australia and I can tell you I don't follow their TikToks and Instagrams and, and it's just not feasible to do so. The amount of people that we'd need to employ to do that would be, you know, obscene. So we've got to prioritise and prior to this we had a purely complaints-based advertising approach and we've moved to a proactive advertising approach in cosmetic surgery so that we can see these things when they occur. We're still not going to see everything but we're looking for problems now. That's sort of what surprised us the most and I think we're actually in that first documentary with our shock saying this is all publicly available 
Why are we doing it? Where is the regulator? Are you surprised that um, essentially regulators now have to write down explicitly that surgery can't take place in a bathroom, that you can't ask your patients for nudes for social media? Are you surprised that that had to be written down? So the whole basis of our regulation and the code of conduct relies on practitioners recognising what's right and doing what's right. If we wanted to have an approach that assumes people are going to do things wrong, we would have a lot more paperwork, a lot more rules and regulations. So we apply some basic principles, a framework, a code of conduct, and we assume that well-trained ethical medical practitioners are going to do the right thing by their patients. That's kind of the basis of our system. So when we see things that don't meet that, we have a look then at our ability to go and enforce. And at times, if we haven't written it down, it's hard for us to enforce because we didn't actually foresee that some people would do the things that we've seen. So we've had to go and write down those things. We've had to write down the bleeding obvious that it's not okay for a doctor to pathologise normal human variation and tell people they've got bingo wings and you know, need a mummy makeover and those sorts of things. Like I thought that was obvious. But if we don't write it down, it's hard for us to enforce it. So we've had to write down a whole bunch of things. We're actually going to have a guest on this podcast who did a PhD on pathologizing ugliness. So it'll be interesting to gain their perspective as well around this issue. I've found myself in situations where I'm out with a friend and I like photography. So I've taken a photo of kangaroo in the bush and I'm scrolling through my phone to show them the photo and I'm going through all the screenshots of the doctor's conduct that we screenshot when we see it on social media and there's often a gasp from my friends like what what have you been looking at and I have to say oh that's actually medical doctors advertising cosmetic surgery in Australia that's that's their creepy content. I'm just capturing it so I can do something with it. Has your team or have you had experiences like that where you're almost too embarrassed to be seen looking at the content to uh, regulate the space? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've kept a separate uh, social media account for my work and for my personal life because, frankly, I don't want my feed to be um, you know, littered with the things that are in my work feed. The office that I work in has uh, you know, glass walls so everyone can see what I'm doing and uh, often the things on my screen are not things that you would ordinarily have in a professional's uh, office uh, as you walk past my window and look in to see what I'm looking at. And similarly, when I'm working from home, thankfully I have um, young adult children, not young children, um, but occasionally uh, you know, my family walk past my screen while I'm doing my work. Uh, and yeah, absolutely, some of the things that you see are, are not what you expect to see uh, in a normal workplace. It's just gone so far. What what concerns us? I know we've had quite a bit of a crack at the regulator, but these when you look at the codes of conduct that the colleges have, the RECGP and, and the plastic surgery groups, if, if you read their codes of conduct, you would think you would need to do a lot less to get kicked out, but for somehow for some reason they all maintain their connection to those colleges and get to be with their peers. Did, do they have a role in this to, to say to their members, at least in private conversation, what you're doing is unacceptable. It's, it's embarrassing us all. 
Look, we've certainly had productive conversations with a lot of associations, colleges and, um, and societies uh, related to the professions that we regulate. So you know, we think it's very helpful for us to engage with them and for them to engage their members. And in fact, members are more likely to listen to their own association than they are to the regulator. That's just because they feel closer and safer talking to them. So it's really important for us to work with them. Um, but you know, I won't speak for them about their role and their membership. So this brings us to our next segment. It is called OK or Not OK. It is intended to help the public identify what might be unlawful or not allowed in advertising cosmetic surgery. So this will essentially help patients think more critically about what they're viewing online and whether this is intended to manipulate them into thinking that there's something wrong with the way that their natural body looks, because that is ultimately what we have seen happen. So this isn't probably, this might not necessarily be our stance, but our stance here is that if a doctor is prepared to disregard advertising rules, what else are they prepared to disregard? So we're hoping that with this segment, it'll help patients potentially identify breaches of ARPRA's advertising guidelines. I love the idea of what you're trying to do with this, Madison. Uh, before I dive into individual details, I think it's really important to look at the big picture. What is good practice advertising is a good place to start. Good practice advertising gives balanced and accurate information to patients. The overall impression created by the advertising doesn't mislead. It describes and shows realistic results, presents risks and recovery accurately. It makes clear that one person's outcome might not be another person's outcome. And it presents normal body variation positively. It doesn't pathologize normal human variation. Clearly, medical practitioners doing that just isn't acceptable. When we review advertising, we do look at the small details, but we also look at the overall impression that the advertising gives, what's a patient who's thinking about going to that doctor going to take away from the advertising? So it's not just the individual words and the individual you know, breaches or potential breaches. You can potentially, as an advertiser, avoid all of the specific words that we say you're not allowed to do and still create an overall impression that is misleading and that is not okay. But I think it is still helpful to look at the individual examples. Jason, I just want to read you a list first. Instagram, Facebook, Vimeo, TikTok, YouTube, Linktree, podcasts, websites, bus ads, shopfronts, comments, metadata, books, public comments. Do you consider all of these forms of advertising and areas of interest to your compliance team? So advertising is anything that is trying to direct a patient towards a regulated health service. So all of those things, to the extent that they're trying to link a patient to a practitioner or a practice, are advertising and are subject to the advertising rules and the advertising guidelines. Mummy makeover, okay or not okay? Mummy makeover is specifically called out in our guidelines because it's an example that we see a lot of pathologizing normal human variation and making people feel, feel not okay in their bodies. And that's not a doctor's role. Tummy tuck. We don't prevent people from saying tummy tuck, but they need to describe the medical procedure abdominoplasty at the same time. And the reason for that is a tummy tuck sounds pretty simple. And as I've said a couple of times already, surgery is serious. This is not a pop in, pop out, everything's okay, tummy tuck. You're cutting open somebody's stomach. You're moving things around and stitching it back together. That's not a simple operation. 
So just to be clear, it's okay to say tummy tuck as long as it's followed by the clinical term. Correct. You can say tummy tuck, abdominoplasty or vice versa, but not on its own. Advertising to under 18s, okay or not okay? So what we've said is that it's not okay to have social media that's available to under 18s and it's not okay to target under 18s. So they're two slightly different concepts. The reason we've taken a specific focus on social media, as you'd be aware, when you post something on social media, it can magically appear in other people's feeds. And so we don't want it magically appearing in the feeds of people under 18. Websites are slightly different because you've got to go and find those websites. So that's why we take a slightly different approach. But equally, it's not okay to use algorithms and advertising and those sorts of things to target specifically people under 18 or under 18 as part of a broader demographic. So 16 to 20 is still under 18. Advertising using clinical before and after photos. You know, where the before and after photo is similar lighting, uh, similar pose, similar clothing, and the only difference between the two photos is the surgical procedure, uh, we consider that to be okay. What if the patient has a tan in the after photo? There's practical realities. So tan, you know, is unlikely to be a problem, but if you're talking about rhinoplasty, then makeup is definitely a problem. Doing comedic videos on TikTok, even if the patient has given their consent. So it's not a question of consent that we're dealing with. It's about trivialising surgery. So anything that makes it seem to patients that this is a nice, simple thing and it's so simple that we can have a bit of a laugh and a dance while we're doing it is unacceptable. I think that's really important for patients to understand because we've seen some patients say, oh, it's all, this is just social media. This is how, it, how it's used. So why is it important that doctors understand that it's not okay to use social media in the way everybody else does? Well, they're trusted. So when people see a doctor's advertising, they assume that it's safe because the public has incredible trust in our health professions. So if a doctor says it's safe, it must be safe. If a doctor says that it's fun and jokey, then it's got to be pretty trivial, right? What about putting upbeat music with your before and after photos as a video or making a video showing a transformation as they call them? Well, the simplest thing is not to have any music on your videos otherwise it really gets down to context so you know there's some background music that doesn't create an emotive effect and then there's others that are clearly either trivializing or trying to make it like it's magic there's all sorts of you know interesting things that people try to do with music so the simplest thing you can do is not put it on there in the first place okay or not okay using emojis the reason that we say that it's not okay to use emojis is because emojis are associated with fun and trivial and shortcuts. So the use of emojis in advertising for serious surgery makes people think that it's trivial, safe and okay. I actually had not considered the shortcut point there. I know we advocated pretty hardly to ban emojis because they also gain the attention of children but I had not considered that actually emojis are a shortcut in communication. So that's, that's interesting. Using photos sent in by the patient on the beach, in lingerie or in a bikini. We're talking about medical advertising, right? Yes. I think that gives you your answer. Not okay? Not okay. But sometimes patients say, well, that imagery helps me see what the surgery looks like in the wild, in real life. Look, I think it's a good opportunity to really talk about one important concept. So a doctor in their consultation with a patient, once a patient has already come to the doctor, is able to share a lot more information than you can in advertising. Advertising 
is seen in the wild without context. So if you look at the lingerie shot of that patient and you don't have a clue what their before photo was like, then how do you know that that's the outcome that you're going to get? Whereas when you go to a doctor's surgery, it is okay for the doctor to talk about things that you can't put in your advertising. It is okay for the doctor to show you photos so that you can understand how you look in different situations, but not in advertising. Using influencers, okay or not okay? So influencers is a real challenge because the reality on social media is people are influenced by what they see other people do. What's not okay is where a practitioner, so a doctor, is paying an influencer and that might be they're paying them in cash or it might be they're paying them by giving them a significant discount on their surgery or giving them free surgery. So they're all uh, paid or compensated influencers in our view. If you compensate somebody and they advertise because you've compensated them, they are now an advertiser. They are now subject to the health practitioner law and there are serious penalties for breaching the rules. Is there any other message you want to send to patients looking at this advertising and do you want to say anything else that's not okay or okay in the advertising of cosmetic surgery? I guess my message is probably first for practitioners. If you're not sure, don't. So if you look at the guidelines and it's like, I'm not sure whether this is okay, well, then you probably are sure and just don't. Like, be ethical, be conservative. You're still going to get patients who come to you if you do good work. People are going to tell them that you've done good work. So if you're not sure, you are sure. For patients, don't believe everything you see, even clinical before and afters. Funnily enough, practitioners don't put up clinical before and afters for things that have gone wrong. So seeing 100 patients where it's gone well does not guarantee that there were no patients where it didn't go well. So back to the key message, surgery is serious. Don't believe everything you see. Advertising is intended to show you the good and we see a real lack of balance of what can go wrong in advertising. So do some research about what can go wrong and make sure that you've made an informed choice. What concerns me is that routinely see and believe it or not it's it's often plastic surgeons not the cosmetic doctors starting now since the new rules talking about like they make a video about the risks and then you're watching the video and you're waiting for the risks part and then they'll quickly go oh yeah so you've got this this and this and it's covered in a few seconds and then they use dismissive language to suggest almost like give you the impression that it's not going to be a problem for you using words like very very rare and that concerns me because you're looking at a plastic surgeon trusted person a doctor putting out what they're calling educational content and really downplaying the risk that that to me is some of the most concerning language that i see when we're looking at advertising we don't differentiate between specialist plastic surgeons and other registered medical practitioners so my comments are broad across all of the registered medical practitioners that we're looking at. Probably the number one issue that we see is the balance between purported benefits and risks. And that's an area of, of required improvement. And I think we'll need to continue to see improvement in that over time. The rest of the stuff that we're focused on has seen a seismic shift from 12 months ago to now. And the challenge with risk is people, you know, don't understand the risks. So there's if there's a one in 100,000 risk of something going horribly wrong and there's 200,000 surgeries done in Australia in a year, that's two people who are going to realise that risk. Most people look at that and go, well, that's probably not going to be me. But you wear a seatbelt and most days you don't crash. 
So any of those risks that are described to you can happen to you and a lot of them are out of the direct control of the practitioner because they don't know whether you're going to have an adverse reaction to a general anaesthetic if you've never had one before. They don't know exactly what is inside your body until they open you up and try to do the surgery that you've asked for and it might not work. So we advocated pretty strongly for tougher advertising rules in advertising cosmetic surgery. We actually feel like it didn't go far enough, surprise, surprise, but we know that a lot of the industry felt that it went too far. From what you as the regulator understands about international regulation of cosmetic surgery, is Australia now since 1 July the toughest or amongst the toughest in terms of regulating advertising of cosmetic surgery? I think it's fair to say that we are at the tough end of advertising regulation. So when I talk to other regulators, and we do, we have a few different associations that we're in that deals with either medical regulation or professional licensing regulation. And when we talk about cosmetic surgery, people are asking a lot of questions, particularly around the proactive advertising order approach. Most regulators do what we used to do, which is wait for complaints. So we've had a lot of inquiry about how that works. And we've had a lot of compliments on the advertising. I'm super proud of them. And look, there's things that I would love to have put in there that I don't like personally when I look at advertising, but we don't have enough of a basis to do that. So I understand why you would like them to be a little bit tougher than they are, but I'm super proud of the rules. And when I look at the advertising of 12 months ago and the advertising now, it is chalk and cheese. There's still things that I don't like. There's even more things probably that you don't like, but it really has improved. And we should you know, be positive about the practitioners who have made those changes. Like, you know, well done to the industry for moving as far as they have. Yes, I want them to move a little bit further in both what we've got in the guidelines now and there's some other things that I'd, I'd love them to do. But they have moved a lot and I'm really proud of what we've achieved. The Instagram feeds are definitely looking very different than they were two years ago. So it is, a, it is important to acknowledge that that is a positive step in the regulation of the cosmetic surgery industry. Is there any uh, international regulators that have been watching what you're doing? Oh, there's a lot of international regulators who are talking to us about what we're doing, trying to learn from what we're doing and seeing whether the same approach works for them. That, that would be amazing if that started travelling through to other countries and what you started not only started helping people here but people around the world that you don't know. And we often say to people like uh, the nurse whistleblower who, who triggered everything that we're all talking about now, Justin Nixon, that he doesn't know the people that he's helped. He will never know most of the people that he's helped. And, and now what you're doing, changing how you regulate advertising in Australia may actually change the, the lives of others in other countries if that regulation um, flows through and they have tougher restrictions in other countries improving the lives over there as well. Nobody wants to have bad media reports about their organisation and we clearly did have those bad media reports and that wasn't enjoyable. But what we've done is try and turn that media attention into an environment where we can make positive changes. So yeah, I think it's if you're going to have that bad media coverage, you better do something about it. What would you suggest to influencers who feel they were botched or otherwise are unhappy with their outcome, keeping in mind that they've actually signed documents with doctors promising to promote the practice? Regardless of whether you're an influencer, you're still a patient and doctors have to do the right things by their patients. So if your doctor hasn't done the right thing by you, you can talk to us. 
even if you've signed a contract with the doctor, the doctor cannot make you not talk to the regulator. And there's significant protections under the national law for talking to us that you're not subject to criminal or civil liability for talking to us. So I would definitely encourage them to talk to us if something's gone wrong. Do you prosecute every case that comes across your desk? A simple answer is no. Uh, If I start with an analogy, it's illegal to go 63 kilometres an hour in a 60 zone. But the police don't generally issue fines at 63. They focus on higher risk issues like the person who's going 80 in the 60 zone. So when we deal with advertising breaches, our first goal is to have the doctors fix the problems. Where the problems are minor and the doctors address them, uh, we don't need to take any further action. The advertising problem has gone away. But we can and we do take action where the breaches are more serious and where doctors have repeated breaches or where they fail to do what we've asked them to do to fix up those breaches. We can impose restrictions that require a doctor to do formal education and then write a reflective report to the board on what they've learnt. And often if we do that, then we'll also put in a restriction that they can't advertise while we wait for that process to complete. We've done that in a couple of cases to date. The doctors have done what they were supposed to do and we've removed the restrictions. Similarly, the board can impose a formal caution, which doesn't appear on the National Register, but appears on the practitioner's record so that if anything else goes wrong in the future, it's taken into consideration. And we've done that in six cases. We also have a number of cases before us at the moment where the board has proposed regulatory action and we're awaiting a practitioner response. In the national law, the advertising rules are actually criminal offence provisions with fines of up to $60,000. However, for us to use those criminal offence provisions, we need to conduct a criminal prosecution to a criminal standard and we have a very high threshold for that because of the level of evidence, generally a need for continued uh, mispractice and obviously the cost involved in going through that criminal process. However, we've recently prosecuted a person for imitating a nurse under similar provisions, which actually led to a jail term. If a patient sees advertising that they think is against the rules, how can they make a complaint to APRA? Probably the simplest thing to do is to ring our cosmetic surgery hotline on 1300 361 041, or they can go onto our website, follow the cosmetic surgery hub and look for our offence forms. So you can fill out the form to describe the advertising offence. But the hotline is probably the simplest way to let us know. Just moving on to whistleblowing, we had nurse whistleblower Justin Nixon, who you'd be very familiar with, that sort of triggered him and Lauren Hewish, triggered all these discussions in the media by coming forward about the Cosmetic Cowboys. He's been on our show and he had some concerns about ARPA and how they manage things. And we'd like to ask you about that. But before we do, can we just sort of find out what ARPA's stance is on whistleblowers? So the term whistleblower sometimes has formal connotations associated with it and sometimes it's just used to describe people. So under both federal and state legislation, generally around anti-corruption, there are formal whistleblower processes. Um, And so when someone's using those formal whistleblower processes, they need to do whatever research they need to understand the specifics of the scheme under which they're making a whistleblower complaint under state or federal law. We don't have a whistleblower protection or whistleblower scheme so much in the National Health Practitioner Regulation. So what we have is mandatory reporting obligations on health practitioners and employers when they're aware of serious misconduct. There's a requirement to make a mandatory notification to APRA and 
below the threshold for mandatory notification, which is relatively high, there's an opportunity for health practitioners to make voluntary notifications. There's specific protections in the national law around immunity from prosecution or liability for working with us or for making a complaint against us. So, for example, if somebody was sued as a result of making a notification, the protection from civil liability would come up in that lawsuit case and protect the person, practitioner or patient, who's made a complaint to us. So there's that protection for notifiers. But making a notification to us doesn't protect you from any disciplinary or other action in relation to actions that you might have taken. So often a whistleblower may have been employed in the same practice as the person who they're concerned about or someone making a notification may, you know, may have been in the same practice as the person that they were making a notification about. If there are things that they have done which may amount to professional misconduct, talking to us about the first practitioner doesn't protect you from your own actions. You need to deal with your own actions um, separately but working with us is obviously something that boards and tribunals would take into account if there were allegations about your conduct. So we don't have a whistleblower protection scheme as such. Uh, we do, however, recognise that it's really hard for people in some situations to be able to make a complaint to us when their employment might be on the line. Um, but unfortunately... Uh, for people in that situation, as a registered health practitioner, you've got responsibilities to act ethically in accordance with the code of conduct at the time. And if you don't, that's something that you know, we'll need to look at. The best thing to do if you find yourself in that situation is you know, call stop immediately, get yourself out and, and talk to us and probably talk to your indemnity insurers at the same time. There, from speaking to nurses in the industry, there does appear to be that power imbalance between doctors and nurses. And then when you look at cosmetic surgery specifically, these doctors own the clinic, so they're the landlord essentially, they're the board of directors, they're the boss, they're also the doctor. So if a nurse wanted to raise an issue internally, it becomes very difficult for them because the doctor is ultimately the one who is – it's a top-down structure, so there is no one to complain to if that is the person that is the problem. How does a nurse nav navigate this complex relationship? Look, there's no doubt that there's power dynamics in all of our systems, be that public hospitals, private hospitals, you know, private clinics. There are those challenges of you know, who, who's controlling employment contracts, who's got more professional esteem as seen by other people. Uh, which does make it harder for, uh, for example, nurses or for junior registrars to make a complaint about a senior consultant, for example. But if you know that what you're seeing is wrong, talk to us. You can talk to us confidentially and we can do our best to protect your confidentiality. We won't release your details as a notifier to us unless we're legally, legally obliged to do so and that's potentially going to occur during a tribunal hearing, but that's a fair way down the track. Uh, so let us know so that we can stop the practice of the person who's doing something wrong and get yourself out of the situation. Not talking about any specific cosmetic surgery clinic, but some doctors prefer to hire inexperienced nurses and then train them in their way of doing things, which the nurse might not even realise that that's wrong or not safe or not standard practice until much later down the line where they have become involved in things that are illegal or not proper 
and therefore then find themselves at the centre of a complaint. How does the regulator navigate this? It's difficult and I guess my first advice would be if something doesn't feel right, talk to your peers. So you've just, you know, if you've just graduated university, you've got a whole bunch of other people that you graduated with, you've got your instructors and there's other senior people outside of the practice that you're in that you can ask for some advice because I agree, you know, you're, you're a junior person walking into a practice and you don't know what, what right is or you get told like uh, many courses do, oh, that's not how we do things here, that's just what you learn in school. So seek some advice and find out. But we recognise the power dynamic and if you look at our regulatory action that we've taken in response to notifications, we've got 14 practitioners responsible for 170 notifications who are not currently practising cosmetic surgery as a result of the notifications we've got. They're all medical practitioners. What if a whistleblower wants to make a notification to APRA but they don't have a lot of evidence to prove the claim they're making and they're worried that it'll be called vexatious? So we have a vexatious notifications framework and there's a relatively high threshold for vexatious. So there's misconceived is one of the terms that's defined under the national law rather than vexatious and that's often used where there's insufficient evidence for us to be able to make a finding. So obviously we can't take regulatory action against a practitioner, in this case the medical practitioner, unless we've got sufficient evidence and a basis for doing so. So we do need uh, evidence of what's going on, be that names of individual patients so that we can request patient records. So we don't necessarily need all of the records because we have pretty significant powers under the national law to go and get records and get evidence uh, where we're aware of where to look. But just saying Dr Michael's dodgy, we can't really deal with that. And even if there's some specifics about in this procedure, this is the sort of thing he does, we really need a specific patient at the end of that doctor's practice for us to be able to seek the records because we have to have something concrete to put to the practitioner. We can't take away someone's registration without just cause and without providing them with a right of reply. You know, we want to protect the public and it's clearly our role is to protect the public and in those situations where we have to balance the rights of the practitioner and the rights of the public, the rights of the public outweigh the rights of the practitioner. That's why we have powers to suspend while we're investigating, even though we haven't collected all the evidence. But we've still got to have a credible basis for doing so. So we do need something to work with. Some nurses think that APRA will take the word of the doctor. How can they build more evidence to make a notification safely? If a patient's been harmed, then it's not just the nurse telling us, particularly if you can get the patient on board, that you know, they need to be part of the notification process. If you're now talking about a patient and a nurse talking about a doctor, the power imbalance has completely changed. I'll give you two scenarios and they're either both okay um, or, or just one. So the nurse sees a patient get harmed. They give you, APRA, the name of the patient, say this person was harmed. The second is that they approach the patient and together they make a notification about the doctor. Do both of those work or is one problematic? So on the first one about telling us about the patient without checking with the patient first, depending on the type of harm that we're talking about, if it's serious risk to the public, it's not just an optional, it's actually mandatory for the practitioner to tell us and the national law allows them to tell us 
the details of the patient in that case. So they absolutely can share the name of the patient and the process and what went wrong and we will protect that information. Uh, so we've got the opportunity to do that under the national law. Ideally, you've spoken to the patient and the patient has said, yes, I want to be involved in the process. One of the challenges is in the first option where we're told about the patient, we'll contact that patient at some point in the proceeding and check that they're willing to be a party to it. And if they're not, it makes it really hard for us. If we can't release the details of the patient who we're talking about to the practitioner, it's really hard for us to put them on notice about our concerns. But that's our problem. That's not the problem for the practitioner who's seen the behaviour in the first place. And I guess the challenge in your second option there is if you start talking to a patient and the patient doesn't want to um, doesn't want to participate, uh, then there's a potential that's going to get back to your employer. So you know it's it's a vexed it's a vexed area. But you can certainly make a confidential notification to us with the patient details. What if the patient hasn't been harmed yet, but the, what the nurses or the doctors are seeing is alarming to them? It's a departure of standard practice. So there's no real evidence. They haven't filmed anything, haven't recorded anything. It's just purely what they witnessed. How do they go about making that notification? I think it's a really important question because you'll see things that are supposed to occur that aren't occurring, infection control being a really good example that might not occasion harm today, but will almost certainly cause harm in the future. And we want to get to it before it causes harm. So if you've got practitioners who are not following the appropriate procedures, I'd say seek some peer advice first, just to make sure that your understanding of the situation aligns with you know the broader peer view of the situation to say, yeah, this looks like it really is subpar. And then talk to us about the situation that you've find the challenge then is how we get the evidence of what's occurring so there's likely to be some interviews with you potentially some other people who are in the same practice to try and really understand what's going on in that practice because surprisingly enough doctors aren't going to write that in the patient records nurse whistleblower justin nixon said that he was really frustrated with the process when dealing with APRA, and we just wanted to and he still remains frustrated and he feels that he wasn't properly listened to. If we can just play you what he said when we interviewed him and just ask what your thoughts are on that, is that okay? Maybe. <laughs> so in terms of support, yeah, I was offered um, counselling and yeah, that, that's good, um, but it wasn't something that I was really interested. In terms of where did APRA fall down, um, they failed to listen and to act in an appropriate fashion um, when I had raised the alarm. So certainly that's where they've fallen down. Um, they need to, if there is someone coming forth, we need to be listened to and certainly they needed to act in a timely fashion. Um, and also there were several instances when I had expressed how exhausted I had been by, um, you know, making my concerns known and that they'd failed to act on it and then almost being told off by one of the investigators that they didn't like my tone. Um, that was very difficult. Um, Are you able to respond to this? 
Look, I don't think it's helpful to talk about the specifics of the case that we're working with Justin on, but I can talk in the broad. Um, so whether the notifier is a practitioner or a patient, there's no doubt that our processes take longer than we'd like them to. And particularly for patients, some find it re-traumatising. So what we've commenced is a notifier support service to try and provide some psychological support to notifiers and let them understand our processes while we go through that process. I've heard a number of times that we fail to act. And as I mentioned before, there's 14 practitioners who are subject to 170 complaints who are not practicing cosmetic surgery right now as a result of the notifications that we've received. So we haven't finished the investigations. They're interim controls that we've put in place to protect the public while we complete our investigation. So it's super frustrating that investigations take time and there's nothing worse than having to go over something that went wrong in your life a couple of times with investigators. But I think it's unfair to say that we haven't acted. Perhaps we didn't provide enough context there. I think that was in regards to a patient, and I understand you can't talk in specifics, but a patient headed up in the ICU a couple of weeks after the documentary aired. And that was, I think, a source of frustration for Justin in that he felt he wasn't listened to and his information wasn't acted upon and that patient could have been protected. He'd been emailing ARPA specific concerns about that practitioner. That's why he felt let down. Yeah, you'll understand I can't talk yeah. about yeah. Um, specific cases. And whilst we can take immediate action while we're conducting an investigation, we do have to have enough evidence that there's serious harm and credible evidence of serious harm for us to be able to take that action. And there's processes by which it's not ARPA who makes that. We have to gather the evidence, take it to the Medical Board of Australia for them to make a decision. Then there's a process under any of our regulatory action where we have to put accusations to a practitioner, give them an opportunity and an immediate action. It's a pretty short opportunity to respond before we take away their source of income. Our intended audience for this podcast is the public so specifically patients or those who know someone who wants cosmetic surgery or they themselves are getting cosmetic surgery so we want to go through some specific scenarios that don't relate to any real life example but they could be things that do happen and have happened sometimes we have come across patients who have said they felt uncomfortable but did not know what to do or how to get out of the situation Sometimes they've already paid for their surgery. Sometimes they didn't realise what went wrong until afterwards. Let's use an example. A patient goes in for a consult. Next thing they know, the doctor tells them to take all their clothes off for photos for liposuction. Given that trust, that is automatically given to doctors, which we've already touched on. Patients do this even if they are uncomfortable and they don't really question it. So this patient, unbeknownst to her, her, na her naked photo was put up onto YouTube and her tampon string was actually visible. If ARPA exists to protect patients, how can this patient be protected in this instance? What suggestions can you make to patients in these instances? So obviously our ability to act in that case really is after the fact. You know, we're not in the room, they're able to protect the patient. Um, unfortunately, the best we can do is protect the future patients when we find out about it. It's not okay for a doctor to tell you to take your clothes off unless you need to take your clothes off so that they can do the specific thing that they're there for. So, for example, if you're getting something done to your breasts, then there's no reason for you to take your underwear off. 
So if a doctor's asking you to do something that is unrelated or appears unrelated to the procedure they're going to do, that is a massive red flag and you should hit the pause or stop button and get out of there if you're not comfortable and tell us uh, if people are trying to do uh, those that, that, that behaviour. The next thing is if somebody's posting your photos without your consent, so if you haven't consented to have your photo go on to whatever social media it is, that's not okay. And if it's nude, that's potentially criminal, not for us. But it's not okay. It's a breach of privacy. Doctors aren't just subject to the national law. They're also subject to privacy law and they've got confidentiality obligations. So you can't just, because you've taken a photo that was medically indicated, so let's assume it was perfectly medically indicated to take that photo, it's not okay to share that without the patient's permission with anyone. What about a situation where a patient goes in for a consult, maybe even just to get some anti-wrinkle in their face and the doctor starts pointing out other areas on their body that they want to do surgery on? Have you considered getting your breasts done, a tummy tuck, you know, those flabby arms tightened up a bit? What, what can patients do to navigate these kinds of situations? If you go to a doctor to get some work done that you want to get done, and they start criticising your body, is that the doctor that you want to go and see? What if a patient wants to bring in a support person into the consultation and the doctor refuses and might even say, oh, the nurse, my nurse that I employ, they will be your support person for the consultation. What should a patient do here? I'm going to sound really repetitive. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right. You know, stop there and walk out. If, if you have to fight, with someone who's going to take a scalpel to your body while you're unconscious and you've got to fight with them while you're conscious, that's not the doctor for you. So they should really trust their gut. If they did want that support person with them and they're not allowed, they should really trust their gut that maybe this isn't okay. Absolutely. Some patients blame themselves for going through with the surgery and we are, we are going to touch on that later around the stigma of vanity and getting cosmetic surgery but they do sometimes blame themselves. They might have had a gut feeling, but nothing that they could pinpoint specifically. So no evidence. What would you suggest to these patients? Obviously, my first advice is trust your gut and stop before it occurs. But if you didn't, and if you do get harmed through surgery, you are going to be embarrassed. You're probably going to be traumatized. And that makes it really hard to talk to us, but it really is important that you talk to us. So we recognise there's a bunch of patients that we talk to who say, I should have known. If I knew then what I know now, you know, or I feel like an idiot, I can't believe that I did whatever it is that you did. But you did. And the reason that you did it is because there is a significant power and information imbalance. So you're not an idiot. You've done the best that you could with the information that you had. It's gone wrong. Talk to us. Before a patient starts their surgery journey, what's the first step they should take? Having a good think about what it is that you want to achieve and what risks you're willing to undergo to get to what you want to achieve. So we're not the moral police telling people what they can and can't do with their bodies. That's a choice for individual patients. What we find is that patients are not as well informed about what can go wrong. So really trying to inform yourself about what can go wrong and whether you're willing to take the chance of that going wrong before you start thinking about this surgeon versus that surgeon and you know, paying your money and that sort of thing. It really is risk associated with surgery. And for some people, 
that risk they consider worth it. And that's okay. That's their choice as long as they understand. As of 1 July, doctors can't store patient photos on their personal electronic device, so their mobile phone. This was actually really important to us because we'd heard anecdotal stories around doctors showing nude photos of their patients to their friends, but we also had more broader concerns around cybersecurity, what happens if that phone gets lost or stolen, what happens to those photos. Also the fact that that phone is accessible in their home so anybody in their household can potentially access those images as well. How can a patient ensure that their photos, their clinical images are being taken on a practice device and not a doctor's personal mobile phone? I think it's uh, difficult for patients to, to work in that situation. If you see a doctor using their mobile phone and not a professional looking camera of some description, there's a fair chance that that is going to be on their personal device. So you're not comfortable with that then say no I'd rather it be taken on a proper camera like you're supposed to under the ARPA guidelines that's not an easy discussion for a patient to have with a doctor because the doctor's the expert right the other thing which is really inconvenient advice but it doesn't stop it being true is when you get the things that a doctor gives you to sign do read through them because often what we find is patients don't know what they've signed themselves up to and so if they've signed up to you can use my images in perpetuity on Instagram, then that's obviously more of a challenge, which is why in the new guidelines we've introduced additional protections that say patients must be able to remove their consent. So even if you've signed everything away, tell the doctor that you don't consent and put it in writing and keep a record of it. And if they keep using your image, that's going to be a problem with us and potentially with other regulators depending on the type of imagery that it is. So a patient can come to APRA and complain if their images are being used or stored in a way that they aren't comfortable with and they've asked the doctor to fix that issue? Yeah, so if you've signed something giving the doctor consent and they've done what you've consented to them doing, obviously that's not going to be a problem with us. But if you change your consent for that and the doctor doesn't uh, follow your directions, well, then that is going to be a problem for us. In what situation would you refer a practitioner to the police if they for example took unnecessary um, photos of a patient in the nude what kinds of things might lead to that we have made referrals to police in cases of serious sexual assault uh, and that sort of both professional misconduct and criminal conduct so where we think what the patient is describing to us the first thing we'll do is ask the patient, have you spoken to the police about that? Uh, it's better where the patient is willing to talk to the police about it instead of us being a, a sort of middle broker. But uh, if we need to, then we can refer those things to the police. But it's really where we think that it's met some criminal, uh, criminal offence. Is there a way that the regulator can recommend for patients to better protect themselves? So, for example, one thing that I know it's a bit of a debate in the medical community, but... Can patients or would you recommend that patients record their consultations with the clinic? We don't really have a position on recording consultations. There's certainly challenges in both directions in terms of the privacy uh, that goes with that. So you know, I, don't, I don't have a specific view on that and we don't have a preferred approach to recording consultations. You can take notes. You can review the information that the doctor gives you often 
there's a lot of information in the patient information sheets or whatever the consent documents that a doctor gives you and there will almost always be a very good description in there of the types of risks even if the doctor's glossed over it in the consent discussion which is not okay by the way but i'd say you know really nobody likes t's and c's but looking at all that and saying was that described to me? And don't do it like immediately after you've had your consultation. The reason that we've introduced a cooling off period as part of the cosmetic surgery booking process is so that people have the time and space to go back in their head about what did the doctor talk to me about? What were the risks? Read the information that you've been given because you have to have a copy of that information so that you can look at it and go, I'm actually not sure about this, this risk. What's a seroma? What's the risk associated with general anaesthetic? I don't remember them talking about that. Patient recollections often aren't identical to what actually occurred. It's a really stressful environment. There's a huge power dynamic. You don't remember everything that's said to you. So if you read something and you go, I don't remember that, you won't ask about it. You know, follow up on it. You've mentioned before that sometimes patients come to APRA and they're not harmed necessarily like physically harmed but they're not happy with the aesthetic look of the surgery what is APRA's process here look where it's an aesthetic outcome then we start really getting into that area between the regulated health service aspects which we're part of and consumer aspects of I didn't get what I was sold the way we regulate health is around the health outcome not around I didn't get what I paid for, if that makes sense. Um, there's no doubt if you've thrown tens of thousands of dollars at a problem, you want to get the outcome that you're expecting. And one of the challenges when we talk to practitioners is when, when practitioners through their advertising and through their discussions with patients give patients unrealistic expectations of what might happen. No doctor can promise you the aesthetic outcome. They can tell you what they'll do to try and achieve the outcome that you want they can show you examples of how they've achieved a similar outcome from other people. There are no guarantees. So a doctor saying, oh, you're going to get a great result or you're going to look perfect after this, that might be a point where the patient should take a step back and really consider their options. What's perfect? You know, and, and I know people talk about you know, great results and perfect outcomes. I mean, the doctor themselves are setting themselves up for failure there because then anything other than the patient being completely delighted is a failure. Uh, so nobody can tell you you're going to have a great outcome or it's going to be perfect. Some patients come to us uh, exhausted by the process with APRA and they feel that the doctor's word is being believed over them and that APRA says doctor didn't do anything wrong. Is there an appeal process? Is there anything they can do beyond that? So the first thing that a patient can do if they're dissatisfied with the regulatory outcome, and I guess I'd recommend not just look at the outcome but look at the reasons behind the outcome. Sometimes we might take no further regulatory action because of something the practitioner has already done. So if there was a problem with the consent process and the doctor has gone and done additional education and written some reflection on how they intend to change their consent process going forward, that should help protect the future public. So we don't need to intervene further after having told the doctor about the notification. So a no further action, as we call it, which is an unhelpful name, doesn't mean no action. So sometimes the practitioner themselves has done something. Sometimes their insurer has forced them to do something. Sometimes their employer has 
you know, made them do something. So we're not the only player. And so I think sometimes patients see no further action as we don't believe you, whereas actually what it means is we're satisfied that enough has happened to protect the public going forward. That said, if you're unhappy with the outcome, the first thing you can do is use the APRA complaints process. So if you go on the APRA website and look for complaints, you'll find out how you make an internal complaint. So that goes to a separate area in APRA that will deal with your complaint about APRA, which is separate to your complaint about the practitioner. If you remain unsatisfied, we also have the National Health Practitioner Ombudsman. So if you search up NHPO, um, they're a completely independent body to APRA. Um, and so they can uh, investigate what we did. Again, they're not investigating the practitioner, they're investigating our process. Have we followed the process? Have we done what we're required to do? But I think it's also helpful to sort of explain sometimes where we take no further action and patients are absolutely dissatisfied with that outcome. So there's a terminology that we use where you know outcomes are within the normal range or the expected range or it's a risk that was you know, reasonably foreseeable and described to the patient. We see patients who have significant pain and long-term functional limitations as a result of their surgery. It doesn't always mean that the doctor was performing below the standard. And we talked before about risk and things can and do go wrong that aren't necessarily the direct fault of the doctor who was conducting the surgery. So when somebody is harmed in that way but the doctor hasn't done anything wrong, we don't take regulatory action. It is a risk of surgery. Surgery is serious. Things do go wrong. But that patient is still in pain. They still have whatever functional limitation they've got and they are super frustrated that we can't help them. In terms of the complaints that APRA has received about cosmetic surgery, can you share any data or have you collected any data around how many patients have chosen their provider through social media? No, when we're collecting data about complaints, that's not one of the questions that we routinely ask as to how did you find uh, your practitioner. So we know there's various ways that patients can find their practitioner. I think social media is part of it and I think social media and influencers other than health practitioners are also part of creating the demand slash desire um, for today's version of perfection. And if you don't like today's version of perfection, wait five years and it'll be different. Uh, so we don't have a direct answer. So just quickly talking about APRA's abilities, can you ban cosmetic surgery providers from advertising? So the independent review into medical practitioners who perform cosmetic surgery, so the review that we commissioned in late 2021, recommended that we have a look at whether the national law effectively bans advertising for elective procedures. Having reviewed that, our view is that we don't have the power to blanket ban advertising cosmetic procedures, but we do have the power to provide codes, standards and guidelines. And what we've done is to beef up our guidelines to make it clear that if you are advertising, what you need to do. Does APRA have the power to stop doctors from doing cosmetic surgery? So there's a question around groups of doctors and there's a question around individual doctors. So we don't regulate scope of practice. So we regulate title and what people can call themselves. And so we don't say, if you've got this title, you can't do that procedure. But what we do is we deal with individual practitioners on the basis of complaints. So the medical board can suspend doctors while investigations are underway. 
where there's a serious risk to the public and after we've followed the appropriate processes. Only tribunals in each of the states and territories can suspend or cancel a doctor's registration at the end of an investigation. The board also has the power, both during an investigation as immediate action or at the end of an investigation, to impose restrictions on practice for doctors and other health practitioners. We've touched on what kind of evidence a notifier like a nurse or a doctor might need to restrict it for the end outcome to be a doctor being restricted. But what about a patient? What kind of evidence does a patient need to provide APRA to have that kind of a result? It's dangerous and I think it's also reality for patients to think about the result, the regulatory result that they want. I think what we would really like patients to bring to the table is, here's my experience, board with your experience, can you please make sure that the public are protected in the future? That's our role and, and that's the medical board's role. So to help us with that, what we really need from patients is to tell us their version of what happened um, and give us the permission to talk to the doctor about their case. So without the permission to talk to the doctor about their case, even if it was horrible, it's really hard for us to give the practitioner an opportunity to respond. We have to provide that opportunity to respond. We can seek medical records. We don't need patients to give us their medical records. If they tell us about their experience, we will get their medical records. That's no problem. And often patients have seen more than one practitioner. So there's a practitioner who they're concerned about, but they might have also then gone and talked to their GP. They might have gone to an emergency department. They might have gone to see another practitioner to get revision surgery or to contemplate revision surgery. So the more they can tell us about those other things they've done, the details of those practitioners and permission to talk to them, the better it is for us to compile a complete picture to understand what's going on. You said a patient doesn't need to provide medical records. Sometimes patients come to us and say they're concerned what the doctor that they're complaining about has actually put in their medical record. Maybe that they were difficult in some way, they were lying. These are things that patients have told us that the doctor might have furfied a little bit in their records. How can patients protect about? How can patients protect themselves with that? Oh, it's really hard for the patient to you know understand exactly what's gone into the practitioner's records. So there's obviously an opportunity that the practitioner is the sole arbiter of what they write in the records. So we don't assume that clinical records represent you know absolute truth. Where they've seen another practitioner the doctor that they're concerned about doesn't have a role in those records. So they certainly are valuable as well. Where the doctor has provided you with, for example, consent documentation, then it may be useful for us to get that documentation from you as well as from the doctor. And certainly if there's a mismatch, that's a serious problem on top of the, you know, the behaviour that the patient's concerned about. Falsifying records is, is serious. Uh, also, if the patient's taken notes after the consultation about what they understood out of the consultation, which is something that we recommend you do, then your notes that you took at the time are quite relevant and have significant value. Is there a situation that where APRA could pursue an influencer under the national law and how would that work? So if an influencer is paid with money or with services in kind for posting content, then our view is that they are advertising a regulated health service. That means that they are subject to the national law and the rules around advertising a regulated health service. And breaches of those rules are criminal offences. However, our first approach would be to have them remove the content and stop breaching the rules. 
I don't think a lot of influencers are aware that they could be captured under a law that is essentially governing health practitioners, especially if they're not a nurse themselves. So is there a message you want to send to influencers who are patients and are promoting cosmetic surgery clinics? If somebody's paying you to advertise on their behalf, have a read of the advertising rules. Obviously, the main concern we're going to have is with the practitioner who's paying for the advertising and particularly after the 1st of July where it's pretty clear in the guidelines that that's not okay. So APRA have started doing proactive monitoring of advertising of cosmetic surgery online and on social media. What does that look like now? So if I rewind the clock 12 months, we would wait for a complaint and then we would have a look at what the complaint said. Now what we do is we search for cosmetic surgery practitioners and we have a look at their website in light of the guidelines and where we find breaches of the guidelines, we document them and send a, a letter to the practitioner asking them to fix it. Uh, we look at social media, we've got ways to collect uh, social media including uh, transient content, uh, we look at websites, we look at all the sorts of things you can get out online. That's the easy stuff for us to look at so that's where we focus our efforts. Uh, if the practitioner fixes the things that we ask them to fix, then we have a look at whether the breaches were so bad that we need to take regulatory action. And if they weren't, then we close the case and the practitioner will hopefully stay compliant. Where we've had a prior complaint with the practitioner and they do the same thing again, having fixed it up, and then they go and do the same thing, well, then it's more likely that we'll take regulatory action. Or where the breaches are flagrant breaches, uh, then we may step straight to regulatory action. And in extreme, we may go to criminal prosecution. I'll just read you some notes that we've got here. We've heard many instances of patients ending up in the ED or ICU as a result of cosmetic surgery procedures performed in Australia and there is next to no record keeping of who performed the procedure. That's what we're hearing. And healthcare workers don't report it. Plastic surgeons tell us that they are regularly fixing botched patients from both cosmetic doctors and plastic surgeons based in Australia. An idea we have discussed with nurse whistleblower Justin Nixon is a compulsory national register accessible by APRA that records patients ending up in the ED or ICU as a result of any surgery, not just cosmetic. Data tells a story and from the regular industry chat we hear, it would enable early detection of dangerous practitioners while providing better protections to the public. Has APRA ever considered doing something like this and would you support a proposal if we brought it to legislators? Look, we don't have access to quality incident data outside of complaints to APRA and you know, we know that there is under-reporting to us. When I was in aviation safety regulation, we had access to high-quality incident reporting that we used to forecast trends before the next accident. So I'm absolutely convinced that better data helps us do our jobs. Health ministers announced that they were exploring a cosmetic surgery register similar in scope to the breast device register and we fully support that approach. However, I also must say that the national law includes mandatory reporting obligations for all health practitioners who observe serious unprofessional conduct. We hear the same anecdotal stories that you do about the frequency of presentations at EDs and for revision surgery but it isn't reflected in the reporting to us by those practitioners. So there's really a role right now with the rules that we have under mandatory reporting obligations. There's a role under voluntary reporting obligations. And I must say we have seen an improvement. Uh, so we are seeing reports from practitioners, but not 
at the rate that we hear about anecdotally. We're at our final segment now. This is a segment where we ask pretty similar questions to all our guests. From your perspective, what is the dark side of the cosmetic surgery industry? The worst behaviours that we see are motivated by greed and a disregard and sometimes a complete disregard for patient safety. But I think there's also a lot of doctors out there who are trying to do the right thing and be ethical but just don't recognise the significant power imbalance and their ethical responsibility to say no, to say no when someone has a brilliant marketing idea and to say no to a patient who they cannot help. A common theme experienced by botched cosmetic surgery patients is that they are told that they got what was coming for them and that getting cosmetic surgery is an exercise in vanity. Uh, Do you share these thoughts or what would your message be to patients who are being told this? If they're told that by my investigators, I really want to know about it because that's not okay. Um, We find that cosmetic surgery patients who complain to us are often really traumatised and that's real. Um, Their concerns are real and we take them seriously. Uh, As I've said a number of times, surgery is serious and things go wrong. Sometimes a patient has a terrible outcome despite the doctor's best efforts that isn't unprofessional conduct and patients misunderstand that that means that we don't care, we don't believe or we're dismissive of their complaint and that's certainly not our intention. We're continuously trying to improve how we go about our communication of patients but we also recognise that patients in this part of the industry are often quite traumatised and so we've introduced a notifier support service to try and provide support outside of ARPA to patients to help them understand the process and the outcomes. So hopefully that helps them as well. What are three tips that you would give to cosmetic surgery providers? Patients first. Read the guidelines. And if you're not sure, then you are sure. Don't. What are three tips that you would give to cosmetic surgery patients? If something doesn't feel right, hit pause or hit stop. You know, whilst the short-term consequences of hitting stop might be inconvenient, the long-term consequences of not hitting stop are far more serious. If something goes wrong and the doctor isn't addressing it, we know you might be embarrassed. We know that it's hard to talk to us, but please do talk to us. And doctors are not allowed to tell you that you can't go to emergency and they're not allowed to tell you that you can't talk to us. Is there anything else that you'd like the public to know? I think I've covered most of the important things, but maybe one thing that I haven't covered is when a practitioner tells you that it's not a good idea. So you want to get a procedure done, there's a look that you've seen online and that's the look that you want to get. And we understand that. But if the doctor says to you they can't achieve that look because of your individual circumstances are different to Kim Kardashian's, then it's important to listen to the doctor. They're telling you that to try and help you. And if you go to another doctor and another doctor and finally find a doctor who's willing to do that surgery and tell you that you're going to get that outcome, there's a fair chance that's not true and it's not going to end the way that you want it to. So if somebody's telling you that you can't achieve the result that you want, it's really important to consider that advice. Thank you, Jason, for appearing on our podcast. We hope that this has been super valuable to our listeners who are considering getting cosmetic surgery but also to providers. Thanks so much for having me. It's not very often that I get to talk directly to patients, so I really appreciate the opportunity. Cosmetic surgery is real surgery. If there's one thing you take from today, 
It's that you should do all of the research you possibly can and make sure that you are informed on the complaints process before you have your first consult. Here at Surgery Secrets, Beauty's Dark Side, we believe everybody should be free to get cosmetic surgery without any stigma attached. Make sure that you are well informed, know the risks, and that you have a regulator here who will accept your complaint should anything go wrong. Make sure you follow us on TikTok and Instagram at operation.redress for snippets and shorts from today's interview.